Cool, everyone. So let's get into it. Happy Tuesday. Welcome back to Demand Gen Live. We are coming back after a week off. We don't take a week off very often, like unless I'm like deathly, deathly ill or something like that. But we did have a Thanksgiving week, so we took a week off. Um, and before we get into the episode, I just wanted to, because um, we didn't get the chance to do it last week, just express my gratitude for everyone that listens, for the people that show up here for the people that drop comments in LinkedIn that fuel the ideas and send the questions for everyone that's participating in the content and the community. I just am super grateful for all of you and uh, just wanted to say thank you. Now, moving in a couple of quick announcements. The first one is that we do have our monthly recurring uh, expert series event this Thursday featuring Dave Gerhard. That's on December 2nd at 12 p.m. Eastern. Again, that's a European UK European friendly time that typically people in that region want to show up for this one. And so feel free, we'll drop a link in the show notes as well as uh, in the chat for the live session. That topic will be covering the concept and the idea of sales and marketing as one team. And so I don't know what Dave's opinion on this one is. So it should be really interesting to talk through. Obviously, in, in uh, it logically makes sense to, to have sales and marketing be one team. So hopefully we can get into a little bit of the details as to why and uncover some interesting insights. And the last announcement um, for anyone that hasn't heard already, we're hiring at Refine Labs. I think we have 28 open job recs. We're looking for demand gen directors, performance marketers, designers, copywriters, art directors, associate creative director, CFO, <laughs> um, multiple other positions. And so if you are interested in learning more, feel free to reach out on DM or look at the job postings uh, on LinkedIn and see if there's something that interests you. We are literally paving the way for the future of demand generation strategy in B2B SaaS. We work with some of the some of the biggest brands that you know, some of the most high profile, fast growing companies that you know, come to us to help help them transform what they're doing from a demand generation standpoint to drive better ROI. I think it's a really cool opportunity for those that want to be a part of it. So feel free to check that out and reach out. Now let's get into the agenda. We got two we got two items here. I'm looking forward to diving in. I think I'm going to cover I think I'm going to cover the second topic first, which is updates and learnings from self-reported attribution. I'm just going to back up so people know what I'm talking about for people that may have dropped into the podcast or the events later and may not have heard some of this con content and concepts. So I'll go through that first and then talk about some of the things because we're in the process. I think we've implemented this now on 30 B2B SaaS companies. And I believe that I see in the wild, I see a bunch of people that are listening to this content that are not Refine Labs customers that are also implementing it and getting ridiculous insights about how to drive strategy that is just something that you're not seeing right now. And so let's go through it. The first thing on self-reported attribution is that what we've done, and we did this first on ourselves, and then we've helped other companies roll this out is that on our high intent conversion form, which is usually a request a demo, get pricing, request a consultation, something like that, high intent conversion on your website, we put in the form a field that says, how did you hear about us, which is free text required. And the person, after they fill out their name and their email and their job title and their company, they're going to tell you how they heard about you. And then we get that information in the submission and we compare it to what Visible says or what HubSpot and attribution says, or whatever other system that you're using to use for whatever software you're using for attribution and then compare the two. And the fact of the matter is that those two points are very different. 
and they're very different for a reason. What the customer reports is they're going to report what created the demand. They're going to report how they heard about you in what channel, what, who told them about you or how they figured it out, what created the demand. That is a level of data that companies don't have right now because they only rely on software to collect attribution. And then you get attribution software that most likely tells you what captured the demand, which is why you see so much organic search, paid search, direct traffic, or lead gen channels from coming from attribution software because it's all about capturing demand because that's what the limitations of the software allow it to only measure most of those things. And so when you don't ask the customer and use a self-reported attribution or another qualitative measurement mechanism, you're left with a very slanted kind of like overweighted view to specific channels that are the easiest to measure and the places where buyers pass through to buy. And so we are in, we've encouraged companies to implement it. We've seen a bunch of companies do it and have success and get similar results to what we did. And I'll talk through the results for people just to rewind here. What we found in our own data is that about 76% of sales qualified opportunities that come through that form get attributed by software to search or direct traffic, organic search, paid search, direct traffic. And if you look at it from what the customer says, only 3% say that they found us in search. So 74% from software saying, come do search and 3% of search when customers report. And when customers instead tell us that they've found us through social media, a podcast, referrals and word of mouth or communities. And that drives at the moment, 84% of our sales qualified opportunities, most of which would never get measured by attribution software. And so if we didn't have that data point, then we would have an, um, we wouldn't, but other companies don't have that data point. And so they make suboptimal strategy decisions because they're only using software to measure these things. And so now that we kind of have some context about what we're doing here, we've attempt, we've successfully rolled this out, I think in current 27 B2B SaaS companies, and we're going to continue to grow that number. And then we're going to collect data at scale. And then we're going to publish data and reports so that people see what's really going on, right? People are going to look at our, oh, Chris, Refine Labs, it's a professional services company. Your ACV is way higher than ours, blah, 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 blah. But when you take it and we go and get this data across 40 companies and we aggregate it and we, sh and we show that these trends are actually the same across all these different industries and buyers and ACV types and company sizes and maturities of categories and things like that, that people are going to think differently about how they measure attribution. And so some of the key learnings, I want people to take some action. So if you've listened to this and you've attempted to implement this at your company, or you actually have implemented it and you've started to collect some data, I just want to share some learnings because I've been reviewing it. Number one, people want things to be easy. And so they use a drop down field instead of a free text field so that it gets easily categorized. I think this is entirely suboptimal. You, the actual things that you get when you have a free text field are so much more valuable than a drop down. I would argue that a drop down actually, some people will click things that aren't true. I do. I know people give that to me and I, cho I choose something that's not true. For instance, I bought something a gift for my sister and they asked me, after I've checked out where I heard about it. And the truth is that I'm friends with the CEO. 
but they didn't have that. So I picked referral. So I literally gave them bad data because they didn't give me the option to tell them the truth. And so that's happening in your forms too, because people will just scroll and pick one. They might pick the top one. It's biasing the answer. So I highly encourage people to do a free text field. Once you do the free text field, you can build in like string matching automation and get 95% of the, the stuff done automated afterwards with workflows. You don't, you don't need to restrict and then you have both. You have, you have a categorized one that's easy for analysis and you get the whole thing, which for some people are paragraphs of data talking about how they've learned about you and heard about you and figured out how they got to your form to start to try and buy from you. And to not give your customer the chance to tell you that I think is just not smart. So free text over dropdown 100%. If you're using a dropdown right now, I encourage you to switch that immediately. You're going to get way better data. The next one is required versus optional. You should 100% make this a required field. If you don't, we have a limited data set on this, but multiple companies have done, done it this way and made it optional. The data is showing that if you make it optional, less than 50% will fill it out. And if less than 50% will fill it out, is it even smart to drive strategy off of that? Is it even worth having it on there? I don't think so. And what people will say, this is, this is funny. This literally happened a couple, uh, on Monday, I think they're like, we're making it optional. So the conversion rates don't, won't go down. And I'm looking at them and I'm like, what do you, so now you're, now you're concerned with the conversion rates of your form. I'm looking at your form. You have one for the state of where someone's submitting from all this publicly. If you have their email, you can figure out what state they're in. You have a six check boxes for what product they're interested in. And so now your, <laughs> your form is totally not optimized for conversion already. And now you're going to use it as an excuse not to make it required for this field. Generally, when people complain or not com complains, not the right word, when people push back about the conversion rate on the form, it's typically just an excuse to not do something different because if you analyze their behavior, they're not concerned about conversion rate anyway. They're just using it as an excuse. The next one that I'm seeing that I really just want to caution people on is that if you, in some, you can see in some of the boxes where um, like it'll say first name on top of it, but then maybe it'll have like Joe and then Smith, like people will put helper text so people know like, okay, this is the format of the phone number you should use. This is an example of like Acme company for the company name. And then people put, and then they have a form, a field that says, how did you hear about us? And they have EG, colleague, social media, referral, and then go and look at the results. It biases the results. The, all the results that you get say the exact same thing. Social media, colleague, referral. So you, if you cannot put suggestions in here for in a free text field because it biases what people put in there. They're just going to put whatever they, they read. It truly is. Like if you did market research that way, it would be 100% biased. So we need, we, need to like, we need to think differently. We need to be smarter about how we do some of these things. I don't know what else to say. And so those are like, those are some of the key learnings that we're seeing. I think that the, the free text using string automation. So for instance, for us, just so people can really get tactical here, I did about, a, I had about a hundred submissions before I went through this and I literally did this myself and it's super easy. It took me less than an hour. So any, like you have a marketing ops team or literally anyone could do this. And I look at the submissions of what people already wrote. And then when people put like state of demand gen podcast, I have automation that says, if the um, submission includes podcast or state of or 
that, then it gets attributed to, then it automatically sees that text and it says, okay, this is from the podcast. If it sees LinkedIn or capital LI or things like that, it automatically puts it in the LinkedIn bucket. If people put in, I'm automatically checking if it says revenue collective or peak or these things, then it gets bucketed into community because people have already submitted with that data. So I know that it's coming and I know how to flag it. And so you can get the free text and have it be required and then basically through automation filter it down to the place where maybe you have to do five a month manually, but you get 95% of the way there through automation. And then once you actually have all of it, once you actually have all of it, you can put together dashboards, which is what we've started to do now and look at it in two different ways. What's capturing the demand, what's creating demand at the lead at the high intent conversion level at the sales qualified opportunity level, at the customer level. And you'll just, you'll literally see different things. You, if we go to our customers, which I don't know, I haven't checked in the past week and we've closed quite a few. Uh, last time I checked, there was probably like 10, 10 data points from when we've been collecting this at customer, okay? On the capture demand side, it was seven, like, just like what the data talks about is 70% organic search, it was like, 20% direct traffic and it was 10% like offline sources. They were already in our database, something like that. That's what's capturing the demand. That's what you're going to get in attribution software. And then when you look at self-reported attribution, what's creating demand, it's literally just like, I think it was probably 50% podcast. I mean, no, 50% LinkedIn, 25% podcast, 20% community, some level of word of mouth. And you you get no search, you get no direct traffic, you get none of that stuff. And so I'm just like the take home, a lot of good details in there, but the take home is like, there's an, there's literally just another level of data here that you could capture super easily comes directly from the the mouths of your customers that arm you to make strategy changes in marketing that you want to make anyway. If you listen to this podcast, you want to make these changes anyway, you can't because attribution software doesn't read the right things that's that doesn't tell you what's happening in the real world it's telling what's happening in software and so if you literally just implemented this it would like serve it up on a silver platter where you can go back to executives and be like look we just did this for the past i'm just going to collect data for two weeks here's what we got looks like 30 percent of our stuff is coming from social media but we're we're not investing there at all so I'm hoping that there's some tactical questions here so we can even dig deeper because there's a there's a long roadmap of things that you can do with this when you break out of the break out of the cage of using just software to measure stuff. So let's get into it. Um, as the as the group is uh, here, McCall, bring you on. Way to save me here. I was gonna make up a question. Bringing you on the show. Yeah. Welcome. Hey, hey, finally, it's happening after a month of listening. I just got up at 1 a.m. to be here. So really <laughs> awesome to have you here. Awesome. So, yeah, just on that very topic, when I'm just curious when your clients use this sort of excuse, as you call it, of decreased conversion rate, how do you react other than telling them that it's an excuse? How do you make that culture change? I tell them if they're concerned about conversion rates, then they should buy enrichment software. They should remove that field that's totally unnecessary about what state people are in. I think they should remove the check boxes of what products someone's interested in because you can definitely do that offline. 
and I just show them that they're not they're they're not concerned about conversion rates. It's, it's clear in what they're doing, and so if and then if they want to make those changes, because like if they were, what we've always done is we've taken out a field that's unnecessary and we've put this in instead. So you have the same net net. You have the same amount of fields. You could use other tools to actually lower the amount of fields even further and make it better. But most companies don't do it. And so it's weird because companies say the conversion rates are going to go down. But then when you look, they literally spend zero effort in an entire year optimizing that form. Zero. They don't look at data. They don't run the A-B test. They don't try and shorten the fields. They don't do anything. It's fat. Like it's just, it's fascinating. So it's, it's clear that they, that it's an excuse. But if we went even further, you could you could A/B test this pretty easily and get strong. You get good enough data to move forward. The last piece is that like, I really want data on this because this is opinionated. But like, and we put it on our forms and seen that our requests continue to go up every month. We added it to our our form and have had no challenges. When people really want to buy something from you, and there's one extra field, who cares? There was old school conversion rate. They're going to convert anyway. When there was like old school conversion rate optimization principles that a lot of people are pulling this stuff from, it was when you're going to buy a Google ad for the term like budgeting, trying to sell people budgeting software, and you have a million clicks or a million searches a month, which drive whatever, 30,000 clicks. And whether the conversion rate is 1.2% or 0.96% matters. But at a high intent conversion, that like 0.2% really doesn't matter. And my, and I don't think that it, cha- I don't think that it changes. I think that it's normal fluctuation for things to go up and down at that level. So I think there's, we had a an episode a little while ago that was talking about all the things that you need to un the old outdated marketing principles that are in your head that drive str- subconsciously drive strategy that you need to unlearn. Um, and one of them is that like, Doing high volume, low intent lead gen, yeah, you should think about what the conversion rate optimization principles look like. Driving buyers that have been super educated on your brand over the past two years that now, that knew that they were gonna buy from you when the time came and now the time came, they don't care whether there's five or six fields. They're gonna convert it either way. So it's a a complete difference in marketing strategy, but I kind of went in several directions, so happy to to, uh, answer a follow-up, but that's pretty much what I do. Awesome. All right. Well, it's, it's 1 a.m. You got up for it. So feel free to come back on later and ask another question so we get, you get your money's worth. I know you did have another question, though. Go ahead and sneak <laughs> it in now. I think it's dark funnel awesome. and then we'll come back to self-reported attribution. But since you're on and in case you need yeah. to go to bed soon, <laughs> ask away. No, 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 no. I'm staying up. I'm staying up. So, um, yeah, one question about the dark funnel, because so you advise to learn about your target market by being with them in the dark funnel and answering their questions, read their conversations and so on. And so that's all great when you're talking about their main areas of interest. I wonder what do you do and how do you do it when it's a very niche interest that they are very unlikely to be discussing. To give you an example, one of my clients is an artist who sells custom-made art into fancy lobbies, okay? And so she wants to be with the like, you know, law firms and and consulting firms and so on. She -hmm. wants to be, of course, in the dark funnel with those people. But then they never talk about this kind of stuff. And so I wonder what she can do to be there with them and to, to, to understand where their pain points and problems are as far as office decoration is concerned. They just never talk about it. 
So how do you how do you are active in the dark funnel with them mm -hmm. when it's a very niche interest? And that reminded me of the story that you told about that for the doctors that you served, that it was only one or two percent that respiratory problem, right? That there was only one or two percent mm -hmm. of their interest was in that area. So I wonder how do you solve that? You need to focus on what they care about, not what you care about. It's it's like it's simple, but it's really challenging, right? So if you if if you're selling art into law firms, perhaps you don't need to talk about the art, but you need to think about how the the art changes the how the client feels about you and lowers your acquisition costs or increases your retainers or different things like that. Perhaps you need to actually be the person that hosts events with lawyers that other law firms want to show up. This is probably the idea now that I think about it. You probably need to be the person that puts on curated event micro events that get filmed to create content and amplify digitally that are round tables or fireside chats with two famous law firm owners, lawyers, you plug and play with whatever you want. And then you invite the firms and things like that in your local area that you're trying to go to go after and go and do that. And you put the art around the event. You have an event and an art and an art show. And I think a lot of people would actually like that. I think that would be cool. You can make it a little cocktail hour. I think there's a lot of cool things that you could do. And then you get all of that content that is lawyers talking about things that other lawyers care about. And then you post produce that and you put that on the internet. You put that in the Facebook group. You put that in the podcast. You put that on LinkedIn. And I think that's how you really kind of like get it started. At the same time, as an as an artist observing that stuff, sometimes it's helpful to even get a deeper understanding about what these people care about, which just goes back to the medical example for me, is after hosting like five or six of those events with thought leaders, I knew more about the clinical data than the average physician. Just because I was lit, I was really in, in touch with what people were talking about right now, and and a lot of clinicians don't keep up with it at that frequency. So it it's a learning tool, customer resource tool, acquisition tool feeds feeds content to um to put on the internet. I think that's a really interesting thing to think to a way to approach it. But if you really look at the route to help people more broadly, it really is you need to, to talk about what they care about, not what you care about. Mm, okay. Thanks. Thank you. All right. Um, I got a whole lineup, so I'm going to keep it going. My good friend, Omar, you're up next. All right. Oh, oh he's got the NFT in the background. That's right. It's actually, this is very fungible. So hashtag dark funnel NFT. You can get it on LinkedIn right now, guys. Go ahead and get it. I recommend using this as your Zoom background. Share it with your friends and family. They'll love it. Chris, I love you. Please don't ban me on this. Um, what's up my man? what's up my man? <laughs> so um i have so the question i have for you uh regarding the text field so you talked about this i, I feel like you've talked about this well over a year ago but i implemented it at the new company i'm at back in i think Jan january or, or february sometime around there and this one text field just blew our attribution off and it still is to this day where as what you do you mean when you say blew it off well like there's i mean i just looked at the data today and i would say that just this quarter alone i think there were like 
20% of the demos that came through the attribution of either direct or organic social, the text field ends up saying, heard you on this specific podcast, which our founder went on or heard about it's you crazy stuff. Yeah. yeah. I want you to finish, but I want to just dig this into people. I'm literally yeah, getting like, we're in the submissions. I heard your CEO talk at this event. Yeah. You're never going to get that in software. And it just, it's incredible to know what's happening so that you can form your strategy. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. Omar. Sorry. No, no, no. I just wanted to drive that home. And, and, you know, I think, you know, I'm, I'm pretty vulnerable when I come on here and share the challenges that I have. And so like one of those things is that now with this data, be it qualitative, I go to, you know, leadership and we were looking at this. I'm like, okay, guys, how do you want to think about attribution? Because everyone's looking for where should we put most of our budget? I'm like, data saying this, qualitatively, the customer's saying that. So like, do you, do you pick or choose or you just say, hey, like the buyer's journey is actually really complicated and it's not linear, right? So that's what I've been seeing. My question to you though mm -hmm. is, and I guess this is a good problem to have in the last few months. So keep in mind, we launched a new website a year ago. We started getting our marketing podcast webinars. Now I have people coming in, submitting demos. And more often than not, the customer is asking for demo or prospect asking for demo doesn't remember how the hell they found out about us. And so what I'm seeing quite often is answers like the internet. Mm -hmm. online. And by the way, for context, guys, it's, these are physicians. So they say like the internet online, mm -hmm. you know, like really vague answers. So how do you interpret that? Right. I mean, for me, it's like, okay, great. We have quote unquote omnipresence, but who gives a shit? I, I categorize if someone puts online or research or things like that, I categorize it into online research and just put a, put a bucket that way. It even go, it's like search organic search, online research, they kind of, they a lot of times go together because the attribution will say they come through Google. I put them in, I like give Google more credit than it deserves probably, but I put it that way, unless they're going to call out like, I found you on this website. I just try and, I, I literally don't try and like make it overly complicated. It just doesn't need to be. Things can be pretty simple. When it get, when you, you before you got into the question, you talked through the, um, that you're going back with the data and you have the qualitative and the quantitative. The key is that you need to take the qualitative and that from the self-reported and make it quantitative so that then you have two things to look at that are going to uh, show you two different things. And the key is when you look at it and you're like, okay, so 35% is coming from social media, 20% is coming from the podcast, 7% is coming from that event our CEO did that you can then look at it and be like, okay, like, it's clear that like if we did a couple more of those events with our CEO next year, and then we could take that content and repackage it into the social media channels that people are reporting, that that would probably be a good activity. And so it's giving the, it, it gives you data to demonstrate things that people believe are true already, right? You see it, people tell you it's qualitative. It's like obvious. It's how you buy, but no people can't show it. And so what I found is, and I just, interact with enough executives, especially non CMO executives to know that like, if you show them a pie chart that takes the qualitative data and moves it into a pie chart versus 20 submissions that are free text, they're going to respond better to the pie chart. It's just the way it is. Sure. Um, and so that's, that's how I do it. I use the, I use the free text field for me as a marketer to really understand what's going on. How do I drive strategy? And then I, 
analyze and repackage the data from qualitative into quantitative, which is totally easy and simple. And I've talked through how to do it through automation to then put it in a way that looks exactly like what they're used to seeing, but the source of the data is different. Instead of getting it from automated software, you get it from your customer. Got it. Can I ask one follow-up to that? Of course. Okay. Because I'm trying to do a little quality control here because before, this, you know, as this thing starts to scale a little bit more, you know, the good thing is that our sales team is great. So that I've, I've coached them on, hey, when, you, when you're talking to a prospect, right, see what they put in that field. If it does not match up with original source and lead source, just ask a qualifying question just to get a little bit more information. And then they can maybe self-select, right, if they have to change it. So if they say online and they talk to them and say, yeah, actually, I heard about a podcast, they can at least put that there. My last question to you is this, is that in the event, and I have a lot of people that are like this, like when I say a lot, like in the hundreds, where they signed up, let's say through a webinar. So we have attribution on them that they mm -hmm. came to us through, let's say LinkedIn, okay, and it's organic social. Months later, they submit a, um, a, a demo request form. They say that, you know, they answer that question like, oh, I heard about you online, right? Based on their activity, it's very clear that they just came directly to our website. So in that situation, what do you do with the attribution? Do you stick with where they first came to us being at the very beginning, like through LinkedIn, organic, through a webinar? Do you go and say, actually, the it was the last touch attribution, which was direct traffic? And again, I know I'm like really it's, slicing this down. No, just, um, it's going to, it's a lot of people are thinking this stuff. So it's helpful. It's not either or it's both. And so right. like, I'm not looking at like, which one should I choose? Should I choose what the software says organic search? The customer says LinkedIn, which one should I choose? It's both. It's literally like they're, it's two different things. It's how the demand was created and how the demand was captured. So ah, that's really right? important. What you just and said, how it's was created and captured. It's two different things and it's two different data points. Right now, companies only get how it's captured and then they pretend that how it's captured is the same as how it's created, which is when it's not. That makes a um, lot of sense. The second piece on it. a lot of problems for me. Hell yeah. The second piece is that in this, my recommendation is to set the rules and then not make case by case changes. So like if it, if the, if the attribute, like attribution software says, LinkedIn, the person says online research, follow the rules that the create demand gets categorized as online research. The other one gets categorized as LinkedIn. And when you do it at scale, like the, the real data will show like the stuff that we get in our data is 100% accurate to what people tell me on sales calls and in conversations with CMOs. It's just like, it's, it's really accurate. Um, and so, and then you can adopt as you get more data, if you need to adjust the rules or the model, just like you would, if you had attribution software, you can adjust it. That makes, that makes complete sense. And that the, the idea of, of categorizing it as where the demand was created and then where it was captured really helps a lot. Thank you, Chris. Uh, nice. One, not, not a question, just one quick, I just want to make a public confession real quick. <laughs> uh, just, just, just because I, I, I want to be the one to out myself. I started a newsletter. I'm starting a podcast. And the answer is yes, I 100% ripped it off from Refine Labs. It's called the State of MedTech. I'm just admitting it right now. I stole it from you guys. So I just, I like I just it. want to put that out there. And hopefully if I do a good job, maybe I do something that you guys say, hey, that's actually pretty cool. We should rip that off of him. So I just <laughs> want to admit that. Mm -hmm. So, hey, 
Hey man, love love what you guys do, and, and I really appreciate it. How much you've helped. What's me. the saying? The best artists steal, or something like that. Like, yeah, good good artists, good artists copy the the uh, great artists steal. That's yeah, right. I mean, I think I've taught publicly admitted multiple times. There's sometimes where I literally see a brand do an Instagram story, I screenshot it, and I'm like, this is the this is great. We need to figure out how to put the copy here and this animation over here. Let's do it right. Like, if you see things that are working that you like, take them, go. Yeah, man. Big, big fan of you guys. Thank you so much for uh, thanks, Omar. my antics. And then thanks, Megan. <laughs> I appreciate it. Of course. Can't have DGL without Omar. All right. My question list is growing. We're going to keep the AMA going. Mateo, you're up next. Welcome to Demand Gen Live. Hey, hey. Can you guys hear and see me okay? Yes. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Chris, I uh, just have a question for you. Um, I know that you're really involved in the B2B side of things. Do you have any insights for on how things do or do not change when it comes to marketing in the public sector? So for example, EdTech does a lot of marketing to schools, school districts, um, as well as just other B2B or SaaS companies that market to uh, the government. Just curious of your on your thoughts when it comes to marketing to the public sector. So like school mm -hmm. districts uh, or just SaaS companies that target the public sector. How does yeah. your approach change? Does it change? What are your mm -hmm. thoughts there? Yeah, so um, I, I personally believe that marketing to a school or to something like that is still be is still a B2B. They have a budget. They tech, they like they have. So they do they get revenue from somewhere whether it's funded through taxes or another way and they use that money to deliver some type of service to people so i still think that it's a b to it's still a b2b sale you have multiple stakeholders typically um there's budget cycles you're taking like the deal size i think there's a lot of parallels here when you look at the what people i think when you really distill what you're doing it doesn't matter who you're doing it for what matters is can you effectively communicate with the people that you're trying to reach? That's all it is. And so just like if you needed to you like it's the it's the same thing as whether you needed to have a sales rep do the demo or whether you could get that information communicated through marketing in a different way that's that's more effective and more scalable. And so anytime that you have a sales rep doing the job right now, it's the same parallel that hey like I just need there's more available ways that I can get this information to my customer in an efficient way, and I'm going to use those. Sure, there are nuances, like there's budget cycles, like there, like some many are more price sensitive. That there's, which those nuances exist in every industry. They're just different for whatever sector or industry you're going for. So I don't think that, especially if you're selling SaaS to like colleges or public schools or something like that. I there, are in, in a lot of cases, government may be a little bit more nuanced and I don't have a ton of experience there and I don't intend to have experience there. But bes besides that, I think there's a lot of similarities. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I know it's it's similar to just like another organization, but do you, do you feel like organic or paid has a preference there? Or since it is more of like a longer sales cycle, it, it's it's more of like a marathon? Paid and organic, especially in social channels, is whether you're paying for the distribution and you guarantee delivery or you're getting it for free and you don't have guaranteed delivery. And so both and then the content's going to be a little bit different, right? You're paying for there's a little bit of difference in in content and objectives and things like that. 
But the answer is both. I hear I hear this from people in certain industries that sell to things like hospitals, outdated, antiquated industries like pharmaceutical or, or manufacturing. They sell into ed tech. They sell to some technical buyer. And they think that, oh, like my customer and my target is way different. Maybe I need to think about a different strategy because they are like, they're, they have a PhD or they like work on rocket science or they're so special, but most people are pretty much the same. I don't know what to say. People like the general human behavior trends that are happening about how people research, how people leverage their peers, how people make buying decisions and understand things, that trend is happening across the board for people that are buying enterprise products in B2B settings, that path is moving. So while there's literally some companies that still think that their buyer, the number one way they find out about things is reading things in trade publication magazines. That's really what they think. And it's just, that was the, that was the way it was in 2004. And those people now, maybe they look at the magazine, maybe, but there's just so many other available ways that they use more frequently that they, they, they check more often that would be a better way to reach them more frequently, more often, more effectively. So I think that don't let the kind of like ed tech or public sector or things like that kind of like um, skew your approach. I think that it's pretty similar when you think about it and you should be go, going paid and organic. And I think that when... I think the number one unlock, and it was really was for me, um, is that you need to go out and you need to like visit some of the schools. You need to, or whoever it is, right? You need to meet the people. You need to understand what they're doing, like when the kids are at recess or whatever. You need to have that insight so that you see, like when I was in the break room and I saw the people just basically spending their half hour break eating and then looking at YouTube or Instagram. It changes how you think about. The, pers- the people that you're targeting and marketing and how you actually go about marketing. Because before that, I was like, these people only look at journals. We need to get that. We But conferences are the best way to find them. And it's just like, it was just my assumptions that were not based in reality. It was truly assumptions. And so I'd encourage you to challenge some of your own. All right. Awesome. Um, Sarah, I'm going to bring you on next. We're going to keep it going. Um... Welcome to the show. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me. Is it Sarah? Yes. Hey, good to have you. Uh, My question is about how you filter different types of website traffic. Um, So is there a best practice for having someone, you know, raise their hand and say, I want to talk to your sales team versus just general inquiries about like your leadership team's speaking opportunities or like a press opportunity, for example? Certainly there's differences and it's not like, it's not super complicated. Some people come to our form that is used to request a consultation and they use the form to spam us and try and sell us their data or their trade show or their dumb shit. You know what I mean? And for those ones, we literally just have a process where once it goes in, if there's no meeting booked and it's in spam, it just literally, we just move it to disqualified, closed, lost, it gets excluded from all the data and the analytics and we move on. Um, and it doesn't happen at a volume where it's that, I don't know, like five, 10 a month. It just doesn't happen at a volume where there's anything necessary from an automation standpoint. It takes someone 13 seconds to take, to drag it from one stage in HubSpot to another. And then all the, 
automation and analytics happen automatically after that. Are you talking about different forms? Or are you talking about people like what I mentioned, someone submitting a form and using it in a, the wrong way? Um, I was asking about both. Um, yeah. What? So what about, do you care about like, or do you get or want to get contacts from people who like want to interview you for a Forbes article or, you know, like where, how do those people find you, I guess? Mm, most of that's for me and just be transparent here. Most of that stuff comes through uh, my LinkedIn DM occasionally through Twitter. Rarely does it come through our website. What about, what about, sorry, I'm going to keep pushing. Yeah, keep, what about with going, clients? Yeah, like, do, do you get this question where like, is, is it better to have like a separate general, like just generic contact form. And then you have like a separate form for like leads where they fill totally. out. Okay. That's, uh, that would be my main suggestion. So like in a, in a standard setup, you're going to have your main CTA in the top, right. It's going to be get a demo or get started or start for free if you're product led or anything like that. And then somewhere under like in the sub menu of about us or in the footer menu, there'd be a general contact form where people submit things for RFPs and you know, inquiries or partnerships or some SDRs do it and it's annoying. So yeah, I would set it up in a different form, but even if you have a different form, not everyone fall, you can't just expect everyone to follow it. People are going to take the path of least resistance. So it's more about having a process in place. So if somebody doesn't take the path that you intend, that it doesn't impact your analytics and your data, or it doesn't get routed to a sales rep and they're like, what is this trash? You know? So being able to like recognize that before it gets routed and processed, which is, I think, a, a pretty simple technological challenge or simple to overcome. What's like, give me an example of what's happening. I'd be ha I feel like we're not there yet and I'm trying to help you as much as I can. Yeah, no, I, I think that the, that makes sense. I, I just don't think we have a path right now. Like right now mm -hmm. we just have a general contact form. And oh, you need a high intent conversion form on your site for sure. Um, your, your website is your number one lead gen i would call it your number one sales tool it really is and so have like the the number one purpose of a website for a high growth company in my view is to convert buyers that want to buy <laughs> so that should be like the num the number to communicate what the company does the differentiated positioning and give an easy path to conversion so that someone that wants to buy can efficiently buy so what what do you what's what's the company do or what are you selling we are a maker of autonomous vehicles and we sell nice. our service to cities. So we're not just software. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But so it's, it's services and hardware. Yes. Okay. Um, and who's buying it? The city? Mostly the cities. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How do you sell it to them right now? Or how do you like, how do you get the opportunities right now from them? I, I think we have some leads that come through this general contact form. Mm -hmm. And then we also have some old school methods like uh, trade shows, conferences. Yeah, email trade and, shows, cold calling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yep. so what I would do is I, and when you, when you, how do people get to the main contact form? Do they, uh, is there a button in the top right, like a traditional, like a standard website or is there a different way? There's a button above the fold, but not mm -hmm. in the top right. 
Yeah. So if you go to like our website, for instance, but it's common in a lot of websites, top right hand corner should be and in the main nav, sticky nav. So it's on every it's on most every page is the main thing that you want someone to do. And I'll typically mirror that in the hero. So it's very clear what the path is and what I want, what we want someone to do. And we've had some things happen where like the number of the volume of the submissions that we're getting is good and growing and high when you have get a demo in the top and then get a demo in the hero. And then all of a sudden companies will take the get a demo out of the hero and put watch this video. And then instead of all these people converting on a demo form to talk to your sales rep to buy, they watch this shitty video and then they don't convert and it diverts all of the traffic, right? That was a sidebar. It wasn't really that meaningful for you, but I wanted to point that out there that like the structure of these and how they're set up matters to direct the flow of traffic into where you want it to go. And so in the top right, I would put whatever you think is the most, and you can test it if you want, but the most compelling thing, we're leaning a lot more into talk to an expert, book a strategy call now, something like if you're, if it's sales led and it's going through like something more like that, where people feel like they're getting more value than a demo. I think that we trying to evolve that so there's some testing going into it but we've been leaning into like talk to an expert yeah yeah yep i like that and it's super clear um and i won't put blend blend services and hardware i think it'd be like yeah perfect for talk to an expert so that someone in the city can figure out how these autonomous vehicles are going to help them yep definitely need an expert thanks chris awesome thanks sarah so i have something exciting we're live streaming this on YouTube and we actually have someone that sent in a question that's watching the live stream. Whoa. So I have to ask on our first, your behalf. Que- our first question for YouTube. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so um, the question is, uh, Chris, could you talk about what you see as the future of marketing and community? What's the role of marketing in places like Discord, Facebook and LinkedIn groups, subreddits, et cetera? It's not the future. It's right now. All this stuff, it's, it's all this stuff is happening right now, right? Like the, and it's been happening for a very long time, right? Go back, go back and reverse engineer how Marketo became such a, such a powerful company in that space. They just had an incredible community strategy. Go back and look at Sarah Kennedy Ellis did an incredible job on that one. And so I like the, the, you, the use of community has been around for way longer than software has been around in order to get people aligned on the same mission that helps them, you know, and then once they're aligned on the same mission, they're interested in the same things, they typically buy from those different places. So I don't like calling it the the future because it truly, it truly is the most effective thing to do right this second. And then when you think about the places where it's happening, it's happening in a bunch of different places. It's going to, it depends on the buyer, the, the things that are happening. So we're having a lot of success in events. I think events are awesome. I think events like something like what we're doing should be a part and a, a recurring stream that help people that are attending. That's all it's here for should be a critical part of everyone's marketing mix in 2022. Doing this once a week should be like the minimum doing something like this with an expert with that your buyers list that are that your buyers think is credible and get help from should be a staple in your marketing strategy. And then, so the event is a really good place to have community. And then that community kind of like can spread out. Dave Gerhardt and I did in in a, uh, an event specifically on this week, maybe someone can drop and reference the podcast in the YouTube comments. So they have it, but then it moves in like ours is LinkedIn and you don't need to have necessarily a 
Slack channel or a Discord or something like that to have a community. I think that you can have a community just that's on a social network, just that's in events, just that is through uh, email is a little bit, it's probably a stretch, but you get my sense. And I know that there are other places where if we, when we go to them, that there are marketers hanging out that we could extend the community to, like a Discord, like a, like a TikTok. We're just making and like inroads at, at YouTube. There's so much open space there to keep going. And so there's pockets and places everywhere. What I try to do and what I've done for a long time and what I try and communicate based on my experience to help other people do is that you don't need to be everywhere. You need to be in one or two of the places that are either the highest organic reach, the most attention or usage from your buyers, or just generally the highest opportunity, and then just focus in there. When we did, and I'm, I still do it on LinkedIn every day. It's been almost three years now, and it continues to be the major driver of the growth of our business. Um, and so while other people continue, like a lot of people would get, quote unquote, get bored of LinkedIn or, oh, well, things are going good. I guess like we can go from doing five videos a week to doing two. Or how can we make this more easy? Or how can I hire a ma marketing manager to do this for me now? And that's just, I, when you have, when it's community, you can't outsource that. You can't outsource the comments. You can't outsource the messages. You can't outsource the event. You can't outsource posting the content. It's got, it, I really believe that it's got to be you. It's got to be authentic. And you have to really care about what's, what's happening. So my, some of my general thoughts on community. And, and I didn't really touch the future of marketing. But if you'd like, I can... <laughs> Try some on that too. <laughs> I think that was perfect because it was definitely like the future of marketing as it relates to communities. So I think that was a great answer to that question. Another question that came in through YouTube that I'm going to sneak in here and then we'll go back to folks live with us. Yeah, maybe, um, maybe we do hit the agenda this time because we've been shelving them. But I've so let's do the YouTube question. We'll do the agenda. Then we'll go back to the question. Okay, you cool. got it. So <laughs> this one was actually watching... Um, uh, a video from, I think the episode we did two weeks ago, actually, the Demand Gen Live from uh, before your trip. So he wanted you to clarify, um, you talked a lot about uh, pipeline and marketers needing to, you know, connect their activities to revenue in a logical way. And he wanted to get a little bit more specific here. And so he wanted you to define what you mean by pipeline. And then can you provide examples of how uh, marketers can connect their activities to revenue in a logical way. He wanted you to dive deeper into that so he better understood your point of view. Mm -hmm. So for my definition of pipeline, and we are literally publishing in the soon, hoping in the next like month or so, our growth framework that involves measuring marketing differently, optimizing differently, calling things differently, so I think people are going to be really interested in that. This is a part of it of how we define pipeline. Another big part of it is that we standardize the measurement. So at the moment, if you go and say, you go and ask a peer in Revenue Collective and you say, what's driving the most pipeline for you? They don't define pipeline the same way that you do. A lot of people define pipeline, that's sad, but it literally meeting booked with an SDR. And so when I've started to notice the entire inconsistencies between companies about how they make these definitions and at what stages and what the conversion rates and win rates are forward, that the data, you just can't benchmark or anything. 
it's like putting apples and oranges. Some someone's calling a sales qualified opportunity something they win at thirty percent, and other people are calling a sales qualified opportunity something they win at six percent. It's like how do you, they're not even the same thing. So, what we are encouraging people to do, from a marketing standpoint, is standardize on a definition of pipeline that we call hero high intent revenue opportunity. It comes through specific sources, like a get a demo form, like a contact sales form like a get pricing form or any other ones that have lead to win rates that are greater than 3% from the source. Then from there, the pipeline must hit the stage where you win greater than 25% of those opportunities. For a lot of companies, that's going to be stage three. For some companies that have really high win rates, it might be stage two. For some companies that have really shitty win rates or a long sales process, it could be stage four. And so you set that so that everything is aligned that, okay, when we are generating pipeline and we call it pipeline, our sales team's going to win 25, at least 25% of that pipeline, which then allow us to project out our impact. We put $2 million of hero pipeline in last month over the trailing six months, we win 27% of those deals. We're going to win at least 500 K ARR of that stuff. And then from there, we can actually project out customer acquisition costs as well. So we can project out, okay, 500K ARR, our CAC payback is going to be whatever, three months, or you could literally do the math. But by centering on a place where you have predictable, consistent win rates that are higher than 25%, so it actually matters to your sales team, I think it's the number one thing. It also creates major alignment with sales. And lastly, it creates major accountability for marketing because if the win rate from that stage goes down, then marketing's goal changes. The definition of pipeline is set based on sales win rates, not based on the deal stage. And so that's a definition of pipeline that I've never heard anyone use. Everything, every, every pipeline definition I hear is about deal stages or some type of box checking exercise from sales. Like, okay, we've had the meeting with the AE, or we've gone through Bant, or we have Medic, or something like that, and that's when it's considered an SQO. I'm calling it hero because it needs to be called something different so that people know that it's different, and it's based on what percentage of opportunities that our sales team win here. And I just think it's, we've been, do, we've been doing it on a lot of companies. I think it just is a better way to define pipeline than how companies do today. And if anyone is gonna love this change, the person who should love it the most is the CRO or the head of sales, whatever it is in your company, because it forces marketers to, to do activities that drive sales. Kind of teed up your next agenda topic on CAC. So mm -hmm. you got yourself set up for the tackle the second agenda item. Cool. Yeah. And if anyone has a follow up on that, uh, the hero definition, I'd love to dive deeper on that. We're going to publish something so that people don't have to hear it. They can literally see it, which I think would just be better in translation because the definitions are how does it get measured in what time window? There's a lot of nuances that I'm trying to help get on paper so that when people do it, it can be actually standardized. Because right now what people I'm going to go a little bit further just to get this in right now, what people do is they take the serious decisions, demand waterfall that gets MQLs, MQAs, all this other shit that has no def no real definitions. So everyone implements their own definition. And that's all I'm just, yeah, I just think people, 
we need to do more than standardize the names. We need to standardize everything across the board so that you can benchmark. The number one thing that's going to be super cool is that when we actually standardize the measurement and we actually have the same measurement going on at 50 or 60 or 100 B2B high growth software companies at once, we're going to have a data set that nobody has. We're going to have in, we're going to have information that not even no private private equity firms don't have it. VC firms don't have it because they don't standardize measurement across marketing. There's no way they do that. And so it's just going to like nobody's collecting this stuff. No, there's no real strong benchmarks in SaaS except for things that I think have poor, literally just like inconsistent definitions. So looking forward to producing some new data to help some people make better decisions. Okay. Next topic. This one has been interesting to, uh, the progression has just been so interesting. I don't know how else to say it is that I just don't uh, over, over the past 12, probably 12 months. I talked to CROs, CMOs, CEOs, chief growth officers, VP of growth, VP of marketing, director of demand gen, people all over the revenue function of hundreds of software companies over the past 12 months. And literally nobody talks about CAC. It's wild. It's, and, I, and I'm like, even when I bring it up, people are like, whatever. They don't say whatever, but that's pretty much the feeling. It's just, so, it's so interesting. And so I'm helping people understand why it matters. And so what I think what people haven't connected the dots on yet. And because, and I'm, I'm not talking down on people. I just want people to understand when most people think when I mentioned we need to lower CAC, what people are thinking is we need more pipeline. And so what I'm trying to help people understand is if your CAC is lower, then you create more revenue at the same budget. You create more pipeline at the same budget. You get way better marketing ROI with the same budget. You create a system that can scale way more effectively so that as you add more money, you get more customers with lower budget. So when you're looking to get more pipeline, one of the easiest ways to get more pipeline is get just to drive better marketing ROI of your existing spend. And so we literally, um, this is just pure black and white stuff. We literally go into companies that spend $200,000 a month on ads and do nothing else but change how the $200,000 gets spent every month and drive two to three X more pipeline. <laughs> and if you drove two to three X more pipeline, the main outcome is that your CAC goes down by somewhere between 35 and 65%. And that's the end result so that you spend the same amount of money, but you get two to three times more customers. And so when you, by optimizing for lower CAC, not necessarily just more pipeline, it, cre it just creates interesting downstream effects. I'm going to go a little bit deeper because there's a couple instances here. You can actually have too low of CAC. We go into this a lot, um, not a lot, but I see it sometimes where if you go and actually calculate what the marketing CAC payback period is, the company has like a one month or 0 0.8, 0 .0, 0 0.8 months or 1.4 month CAC payback 
on marketing spend for a high growth SaaS company. And who knows what that means? It means they're not spending enough on mar- it means they're not spending enough on marketing. They have a mature category that has a lot of organic market demand. So that they're they if they spent nothing on marketing, they would get a certain amount of customers, which then dilutes the overall CAC. And they're not spending enough to drive growth. And those are the companies that when you look under the hood, they're growing at 15%, not 50 or 100 or 200 percent because they just they just underspend on marketing. Some underspend on marketing because they don't have confidence that their team knows how to spend it more effectively, or they've tried and they haven't been able to. And some companies don't do it because they just don't believe in marketing enough yet. So the easiest way to understand the performance of your marketing is to look at it in a several different ways, but to triangulate against customer acquisition cost. And one that I've liked a lot recently, which I think is really interesting, is pipeline dollars per program spend dollar. It's a great metric. And I remember I've been looking at this metric since 2017 because I remember it really clearly. Is that, and I defined pipeline was defined slightly different back then. I've evolved on it, but it was pretty much the same. It had to be aligned to sales outcomes at greater, my old definition was greater than 20%. I've evolved it to 25%. And I would, when we were running Facebook ads, I literally knew that if we, the more money, every dollar we put on Facebook ads, that we would get $10 in pipeline. And we were going to win 33% of that pipeline on average or something like that. And it was just very simple to go back to the CFO and say, hey, like we were spending 10K and then we got this amount of pipeline and then we increased it to 20 and we got twice as much pipeline. And now I want to increase it to 50. And then we did it and we got that much pipeline. There's going to be a place where this caps out, but we're getting $10 in pipeline for every dollar we spend on ads. And that's not happening with the SDR team. That's not happening with our outbound strategy. That's not happening with our trade show strategy. That's not happening when we sponsor this trade publication magazine. There's nothing else in marketing that's driving this, this dramatic of ROI. And when you are trying, when you're trying to be a high growth company or win a category or something like that, the number one thing you need to do is get more customers for less money. Then you need to deliver a great product, great experience, customer success, expansion, right? There's a whole other part of the business that truly matters, but there's a big part that you need to acquire customers for cheaper. And right now, companies' CAC is very high, which means that they're spending more and more on sales and marketing, and they're not getting as many customers. And I just see a trend where it's it's not good. I don't know what else to say. Like spending a lot of money, not getting a lot of customers, doing a lot of things that are outdated or ineffective. So yeah, I would be happy to answer some questions, <laughs> some questions on that. But that is the, uh, what's the topic again? Yeah. I, I just, I want more people to talk about this metric because it used to be the most important metric. All right. No immediate questions on this at the moment, but I'm going to okay, go we back because we have bunch, a bunch yeah. of other fun, different questions awesome. from the group. And so, Perry, thanks for your patience. It is now your turn to come on live. Welcome to the show. First time here. Generally, listen to you when I'm walking my dog. So, uh, <laughs> utilizing my time. Um, anyways, I'm a marketing, nice. I'm an agency owner, and I have a pretty high risk t- tolerance. And so I'll take a lower retainer, but I also, I'm on Spiff. So I'm in the sales department too. And most of the companies I work with are smaller startups, 
and uh, I work in the eye care business and I work with tech startups and eyeglasses companies and they don't, mm-hmm. they're not going to, they don't have the budget for 10 K a month or whatever the number is. So I'll incur the risk, take a lower retainer and I'll make commission. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously the attribution on that becomes very tough because I'm doing a lot of the things you say in, in dark social. Um, I have my own Facebook groups and I have a podcast myself. I built my own communities. I use my own communities to sell the products and clients I represent. And mm-hmm. so now I'm to this point where I'm six months deep into clients and they're like, I'm asking for more money. And they're like, well, I don't really see the profitability there. I'm like, well, you can't track it. And maybe every 15 people out of 100 are going to put, hey, I saw Perry in my contact form. Great job, Perry. It's coming to this point, though, where I'm like, man, I just can't justify it. We're not going to rec- We're not going to spend four hours every month in Google Sheets reconciling. So I don't yep. know what to do to pull the money out. Yep. This is why when companies come to us and be like, do you guarantee anything? It's like, no, because if we guaranteed something, then what you're going to do is you're going to force us into a box of attribution and it's going to drive all the shitty, dumb marketing that you want to stop doing. Yeah, exactly. I just exactly what I, happens. I, I had a call so. earlier with an agency who's <laughs> running PPC and I was like, guys, you can't, you're justifying just a bunch of phony stuff. And so anyone that's making guarantees or on paper performance typically is on paper performance for a vanity metric. Meetings booked, number of leads, cost per lead. You're not going to find people that are smart, that are capable, that drive results, that are not in, as long as they're not in direct to consumer e-com, which is a place where this can work. But if they're not, then you're not going to find people that agree to this because it, it forces you to do marketing in the wrong ways to get attribution, to get the performance metric. And so, um, like, if the, I think you're going to have to change your business model. I think you're going to have to change your business model or what I did. Because, like, when I was in this position, like, before we'd really developed our ideal customer profile, we maybe had two customers. Like, I was evaluating e-commerce companies. They wanted to do pay perfor- performance. They wanted to look at incremental sales lift on attribution against the margin, not even the revenue against the margin. And you run the math and you're like, I'm going to do a shit ton of work and I'm going to make like 1500 bucks. This is dumb. And so it's an interesting thing to think about, but I would think about changing your customer. Well, yeah, I could See, the thing is we're crushing it. Number one, customers are happy. How, how are you crushing it? No, you're not getting paid. <laughs> I think I have an, I think I have enough customers and I'm such in a growth startup phase. Yeah. Small team that the numbers just, and I'm just razzing you by the way, please don't yeah. take offense. I'm, yeah. No, no, I got thick skin. Um, if I don't get yelled at once a day, then I did something wrong. Yeah. But talk me through. Cause like, this is a, this is going, if you continue to scale this way, this could lead to real challenges. So like, yeah. And I think uh, the reason I went this path of low retainer plus commission is cause I just, I want to be in business. No one does what I do. I'm the only agency in the eye care sector working with tech startups. So I'm in, I'm in a very small niche mm-hmm. and every month, like I'm getting client after client after client. So the word's mm-hmm. getting around, I just justifying how I'm the growth it becomes tough because there are the metrics. There's no dashboard. The HubSpot dashboard yeah. is not going to show it. One last thing, the owners are not sophisticated. Like a lot of the owners are previous physicians. 
who made a bunch mm-hmm. of money. They're bored. They're like, I'm going to go start this tech company to solve a problem my electronic health record didn't do. Mm-hmm. And so they're taking my lead on it. They trust me, but their their pockets are still closed. Yeah. <laughs> pockets are closed, not willing to pay the, the, the price, different things like that. I'm just going to re- I'll literally remind people about what happened to me when I started. When I started Refine Labs, I thought that our customer was going to be medical manufacturing companies that had recurring revenue model disposables. Because when I did this initially, that's what I built it on. And it really, and it really worked. And then I went to those companies and I talked to them and I had sales calls and I created content for them and things like that. And I realized they don't want to change. They're not willing to pay. They don't believe in digital. They make excuses about whether Facebook ads work or not. And it just, when you looked at it, they just were not the right customer for me. And so perhaps it's different. Like it feels like you have the skills and the passion for this. And you think that you're the only game in town. So you feel like you have differentiation, right? That's how I felt too. I felt like I was the only game in town that knew how to do digital this well for medical technology companies. And the truth was I was just selling, I was just selling to a customer that didn't value what I was doing enough and therefore wasn't. And then literally all I did was just change the direction 15 degrees to high profile software companies with the same exact offering and companies pay 30, 50 times more than medical technology companies are that are willing to pay solely because they value what I, what we do more. Yeah. I guess Um, I have another moral dilemma though. Here's the the moral dilemma is I have my own brand. I have the Perry Brill brand and that's how I drive business to my clients. And so I can't Mm. adopt some legacy. Is it like an influencer play kind of? Yeah, like I'm an influencer, but I've monetized it through Mm -hmm. my my private groups. Mm -hmm. And my my private groups trust me. When I make a product recommendation. Yeah, now I get it. No, this is way more clear. Thanks for thanks for doing that. Um, Yeah, they're like, Perry, don't sell me some piece of shit from 2010. Like I want the Rolls Royce. And that's I always have the Rolls Royce. And it and your reputation matters for what you recommend, right? Yeah. And so people if you make bad recommendations over time, people aren't gonna trust you. Same thing for me. That's why I always make the best recommendation. That's why typically tech partnerships don't work for refine labs, because I do what's best for you. Not what's best for the not what's best for my partner that has a misaligned interest with what I care about, which is what you, what's best for you. Right. And so and so what I would do is I would, car- for that, I would carve out a specific way where when people are doing it from you, they're taking advantage of an offer. The offer needs to be good enough so that they use it, but when they, so that they use the offer and then it's just like a e-com, right? Like I use people's 10% off coupons and I see an Instagram and I use it for a brand and those, it's clear where it came from. So I would think it doesn't have to be a coupon, right? There can be other ways of doing it, but there's a way to create an offer which then drives some level of tracking back to that contact and revenue. It's difficult. And that's yeah. why like people, people look at in and some most B2B companies look at influencers transactionally, like what we just talked about. I would need a coupon. I need a referral. I need some attribution yeah. to a transaction, but the smart companies and the smart people look at influencers of brand play. Yeah. Right. And actually one of my clients, you know, I had a conversation with them yesterday. I was like, what do you want from me? Like I'm making all these sales. It's their e-commerce sales. It's trackable. 
we had a direct mail campaign. We were sending a sample out of the product, which was very necessary. And he's like, I just want you to keep pumping my name out in the dark social as you see fit. You know, he didn't use that terminology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what yeah. Took away. So I think I'm realizing, man, maybe my, my fee is not for my direct sales technique. It's just mm-hmm. for my inherent brand. Yeah. Um, in uh, some companies will call that a power user group or an ambassador or something like that, which is, right. I think, I think what a lot of software companies should adopt because ambassador or power user means they already love your stuff. And so it's authentic. It's real, right? Like the things that you're promoting, you actually believe in. I've used them. I've been a customer of them in the past. So yeah, I can literally Go be ahead. on one software demo and demo eight of my other clients softwares because I know them all. It's it's crazy, and I think people love that. How many how many customers do you have? About ten. Yeah, I think you gotta pl- um, play around a little bit on the pricing model, the um, the actual fee. Um, look if you have access to their actual performance data. Like look back for customers that have been with you the longest or the ones that you think are performing the best, and just look at their top line performance over time has been with you over the past six months is there a correlation that like it's when we look at companies it's like over a six nine twelve month period of time for companies it's really obvious when they hired us yeah because their website pipeline is flat for four quarters and then all of a sudden it goes starts going up into the right and <laughs> it's just like yeah it's yeah pretty- we, have, we, we have peaks probably about every 60 days we'll have a peak and it goes down and we have a peak mm. Have you looked at it over a longer period of time, like quarterly? Um, sometimes you don't you don't see it's when you look at things monthly. This is a tip for everybody in pipeline and things like that. If you're monitoring and looking at charts weekly or monthly, things like that, sometimes you miss trends and things that are happening. So if you look at things monthly, you you sometimes you don't see that like oh from Q2 to Q3 we grew by forty percent, but when you look at it monthly, you don't really see that trend. So have you ever tried looking at it over a longer period of time? I think my most senior client is at 10 months. So I'm fairly mm-hmm. fairly new to the agency world. It just somehow I got into it. This is the last question. Then we got to make sure we get time for some other people. But would you even consider this an agency? It kind of threw me off when you said that. Like, Yeah, I don't, I don't know what the hell I am. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. My website's even garbage. Um, it's a, literally a podcast site driving clients in my Facebook group group driving clients so yeah i think that you're do you have employees yeah i have three i have two full-time employees and like 10 contractors yeah i don't know what to call it man (laughs) think about a name you're you're onto something you're an influencer (laughs) with an entourage (laughs) i like posse (laughs) thank you cool great chat that was some interesting stuff oh ashley with the pun i fluencer Pretty good. Mm. <laughs> All right. Uh, Robert, you're up next. Thanks for your patience. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. How's it going? What's up, Robert? Um, so events, uh, so services company um, that puts on a big event at the end of the year. The so actually sold out an in-person event, um, wildly successful, moving to a stadium for 2022. 
Damn. Um, so a lot bigger number. Um, and the, the, they're pivoting the my focus on demand gen. So I was building out this 2022 plan for you know brand development, social, and we crank out a ton of content. But my only metric has now become tickets to people that aren't already customers. Mm-hmm. Um, because one, you need to fill the event. But two, it doesn't matter. These are high ticket tickets, <laughs> high price tickets. Yeah, but, what, a couple grand or more than that? Um, two to two to 10. Okay. Um, but if I gave away one for a dollar or I sold one for 10 grand, the show rate is about the same. And the buy rate at the event is about the same. So right now I'm, I'm actually advocating that we just, we go invite only and give all the tickets away because now there's like this model, even though we're services, there's so much revenue generated from the event that that's where my entire focus is, has gone. Do you sell the services at the event or is there something else? Um, there's, there's, um, there's two types of services, um, and there it's tiered depending on the revenue of the, the company. So there's, there's marketing services for the industry and then there's, but there's also business coaching, uh, which goes very well. And that's tiered. There's three mm-hmm. levels based on revenue and, and what they're trying to get to. Yeah. So the, the thing that you're looking at is do you need, does the ticket sales of the event need to generate positive ROI and profitability, or can we use the event as a quote unquote lead gen tool in order to sell the services to sell more of the services? Right. And that's, that's definitely so like, and there's not, it's not necessarily an either or there's some, there's definitely a viable blend of both. So, uh, yeah. So the, like already this month I've, generated 50% of last or this year's revenue going up to the event was in November. So the rest of this month, I've already created 50% of the revenue of ticket sales that we sold all of last year. But again, Mm -hmm. it doesn't impact the show rate. So I'm like, why not just give them away and and fill the floor of the stadium and go. Um, But now we're we're running out of bandwidth as as a marketing team. And because this is becoming such an aggressive push on tickets, um, there's there's these hints uh not so subtle of getting us to do cold calling as marketers and i'm like no 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 um so but like i'm just doing that help me understand this because i'm just doing some back of the napkin math you told me the tickets were two two grand and i imagine yes. a stadium holds twenty thousand people so you so actually the, sold well, all the, the tickets floor. to the event the floor so um my goal is 2500 uh, okay. for for next year Still, that's like what it's in the million five million dollars in in ticket sales is no joke. Even if they don't show up, it's still five, still five million dollars in revenue. It's amazing how many people don't show up that spend money on a ticket. It's actually pretty pretty wild. Yeah, um, um, but I mean, obviously the goal is reoccurring revenue, right? Um, okay, so that's where that's where the coaching and the and the other services, video production. Um, mm-hmm you know, um, brand development, social media, distribution, running ads, et cetera. To what I would do, I'm just telling you the truth is I would figure out how to sell the tickets and how to sell all the services without the event. I would do both. Um, I know my, my, my leadership's definitely 100% focused on the event. Right. So, yeah. So, so, but you could like, what do you, are you gold on ticket sales? Are you gold on show rate? What do you think is the most important? Cause it seems like you can't have your cake show rate, too. Show rate. And then that's why I was making the point of it doesn't matter what I sell the ticket for. 
Yeah. Like, so there were some like, Hey, here's a special gift. Let me, you know, pay a dollar processing fee and come on in. Those people it's giving away tickets, the show, the sh- giving away tickets has the lowest show rate. I got to imagine you see the same data when people don't have skin. Uh, in the game. What, so what we did is we hooked them for a dollar and just the fact that they put in their card, they actually had about the same show rate and the same purchase rate as the people that actually invested real money. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm like, okay, so if, if it's almost an even split, let me just fill the floor, get all the people there. We sell them at the event. Um, but now just but because the numbers become so so more aggressive or bigger because we're filling you know the bottom of a stadium mm-hmm. then I'm, I'm thinking i need to get an inside sales team and right now i have an inside seller and i have a sales guy sales mm-hmm. guy he's he's running the meetings for all the services he's booked the inside seller is the one booking his meetings. Mm-hmm. Um, but selling selling t- these tickets one by one with an SDR and AE for 2,500 tickets, ugh, you know what I, I mean? Sent, I sent 8.3 <laughs> million emails last year or yeah. throughout the, the last 12 months. So, I mean, it was it was hardcore. And, and what, I mean, let's cut, to the, let's cut to the chase. What do you think that you should do? So that's, so what I, and that's, this is where the crux of the question comes in is, like, do I outsource an inside sales team and create a funnel straight to the, like, so what I was thinking is like, if I, if I, I attract, um, and, and cause we had luck, um, as we were getting closer to this last event of grabbing my inside sales guy and he, he pulled in like 60 of his own right in a month, which, which that would make a difference. Um, to get towards that 2,500 goal. So if I had a couple of of those people um, and I had warmed up or nurtured however many touch points, it gets a little more classic rather than what I wanted to move towards, but got to hit the number, um, Mm -hmm. is like find out where that meant, like have them contact after one touch, two touch, three, up to, you know, five, six, seven, whatever. Find what touch point is, the the best return on time investment for the inside seller and that becomes their call sheet and they're the ones then helping hook in additional tickets as i'm creating a variety of offers and pushing hard like the email marketing it's nuts how much that's still converting um a combo of that and lower roi but still not insignificant um doing uh text marketing Mm-hmm. Um, what I wanted to—it's all it's all this is all direct response, clearly. Hundred percent. Yeah. One of the things that I want to do is like do a little answer to the public thing um, on all the questions that they might that they might want answers to that they would get at the event because I'm tired of right hooking all the time and not offering any value um, because we we just ran from event to event to event just mm-hmm. keeping things going through COVID um, and then cutting a bunch of videos based on those questions, get that SEO on YouTube, push it out through email, and then run those same thing as ads to make sure that it's getting into the right audience. Um, So looking for validation there. And then like what you would think, what you think about that funnel um, to a call list to an inside seller um, when I I did see some value last year. Yeah. I mean, 
if I understood you correctly, the next event is in next year, like a, almost 12 next, months next from now. So you, have, yeah. you have a pretty so decent ran. amount of time here. You can put together actually like a campaign strategy. It's not like a fire sale. We got to sell this it's all in 30 days. So you can think Correct. differently about the mix of content, brand, DR, off like super discounted offers, vice versa. You have some time. The things that I've, the things that I'm going to talk through the marketing side and the sales side, because um, what you're asking for really is sales advice, not marketing advice. Um, but I don't want my marketing team to turn into sellers too. I know, I but you, you so just describe what you're doing and yeah. your marketing team is doing sales, you know? Yeah. Um, so on the, on the marketing side, I would take, if you have it, I would take footage from past events that's valuable. Yeah. I would create um, micro videos that can be used for ads that go on Facebook and Instagram. If you have a big email database, you can build custom audiences inside of Facebook and Instagram. You can target the exact people that are getting hit with the email cadences and things like that. So you can have something that's, and it can still be conversion based, but it's a four, four minute video instead of always like, hey, $500 ticket, $300 off, things like that. It can be, a, that one touch doesn't need to do all the selling. Like I'm aware of some conferences because they put a video from a past conference that was super helpful and I watched the three minute video and I didn't, buy the ticket, but I know the conference and I thought the video was good. And that touch point matters, right? Because if they did have some email cadence or some other thing with a good offer that caught me at the right time, then maybe I would convert. So that touch point can be helpful on the, for YouTube. I think there is a play with a similar thing face the camera pre well, you can do the organic side, but I think pre-roll video ads, if you're looking at marketing could be really interesting. Um, and that could be DR to a checkout. And a lot of the stuff that you asked about was really sales. So like hiring an outsourced SDR firm to fill it so that the salesperson can close more sounds like a great idea as long as the CAC is in place and you can actually make sense of it. The thing that you want to be careful of is you don't want to be acquiring people for ticket sales that cost you $3,000 to acquire. You're giving them big discounts. So you're actually paying more to get the customer than they're paying you for the ticket. And then they don't show up or they don't buy or things like that. When you start spending a lot of money to sell tickets and things like that, that are, they're super high margin, but they're also pretty uh, relatively low price when you think about things. So you don't have that much room to acquire the customer. Those are some of the considerations that I would think about. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I really like the, the pre-roll to check out. That's valuable. Cool. Thank you. Awesome, man. Give it a shot. Let me know how it goes. Yeah, appreciate it. See ya. Thanks, Robert. All right, we got a long DGL going. I'm gonna. I've got three more questions. Let's do. Good three to make more. up for last week, but let's get through the three, and then we'll call on night so everyone can get to bed at a decent hour, including me. I know. We used to go to like nine thirty all the time. We know what happened? We get, we're uh, getting old. Kai, it's your turn. It's good to see you. How Welcome we to the show. What's up, Kai? Uh, good to see you. How you doing? Things so, are great. I. Uh... I'm hiring for demand gen. So I, this is a, I have some hidden motives here, but um, what would you say are some tactical exercises that you would put someone through? Anyone can talk to talk. And I think you, uh, Todd shared that three questions video on YouTube, um, but still very philosophical based. Like what would you put someone through if you were bringing them on uh, for demand gen? I put people through working uh, sessions and situations that force them to demonstrate that they know what they're talking about and they know what they're doing. It's easy to talk in theory about your funnel and the things that you've done and the 
like the things that you just someone decided in a meeting that now you're on board with about your company. It's hard when you're inside of LinkedIn ads and someone's asking you live what that means and how you're going to do that and why you chose to do that and you fall on your face. Yeah. And so I put people through practical exercises that force them to demonstrate that they actually know the inner workings. They not just talk about it. And a lot of people break at that point. I'll do it in LinkedIn, in Google, in Salesforce, in HubSpot. It doesn't, depending on the role, you can flex or some combination of all of them. But there's a two out of the three steps of our interview process is working session related that is either building strategy, presenting something, communicating the strategy effectively, working inside of a system that you're going to use on a daily basis that if you were qualified to do the job, then you would know how to use the system in the way that we're asking you to do it. Um, and I just think that's the number one way The really interesting for some of the people that are listening to the podcast afterwards. The really interesting thing is that a lot of companies don't have anyone in the company that could be the judge of that exercise. Nobody understand, nobody in the company understands LinkedIn ads enough to do a test to, for someone to see whether or not they understand LinkedIn ads. Nobody understands how to look at a funnel in Salesforce from a demand perspective well enough to test a demand gen director about whether or not they know how to use Salesforce that way. So, um, the first, like once you have an expertise level and you kind of know what people should know how to do, I think that putting, it's almost like. You know what I mean? Like somebody's trying out for the basketball team. Just watch yeah, them, yeah. watch them shoot, watch them dribble, see if, see what they can do. You know, I'm trying to balance between because I mean this stuff is still somewhat new in the market, and so like there is like go getter, you know, specialist level roles that want to get into this more like demand gen philosophy. Like, what's your thoughts on on balancing? Like, they might know their way around a LinkedIn ad account, but they might not know it from like the right perspective. It depends. Um, yeah, it totally depends. Like this is a, I think a more, I'll put it back to you because it's a, it's really a business strategy choice, right? For our business, companies that are hiring us have high stakes, need to hit targets. I don't have time to go and teach someone how to use LinkedIn ads. I need people that yeah. already know it and plug and play and go and make an impact tomorrow. Right. But maybe your customer doesn't require that. Maybe your business can support a training program to move someone from specialist to ready to do that, right? So just because yeah. we do it a certain way and we hire for a certain profile doesn't mean that it's right for everybody. I would argue that the way that we do it actually isn't right for most companies. It's just right for us. A lot of companies like ours, like yours, um, then have a robust kind of like growth path where you bring people in that are more junior and then they can grow up to the roles, um, which keeps costs lower, like, creates a pipeline of talent. So you don't have to go out and use recruiting firms and hire th things like that. There's a, there's benefits to doing it both ways. We've just chosen the, the more like senior ready to go path. Cool. Well, I'll leave, I'll leave a CTA if anyone's uh, not so senior yet and wants to, uh, wants to learn. I'd love to chat. Yeah. Shoot your shot. Hey, got to do it. Thanks Kai. Um, Kai would be great to work with by the way. So check them out. Um, all right, Pablo. Excited for you to come on and ask your question. Welcome back this week. Yeah, happy to be here. Wife, wife worked late, so I got to tune in here. So Chris, good to see you, man. Welcome back from Costa Rica. Hope it was awesome. Hey, thanks, Pablo. Great to see you, man. 
too, man. Uh, love, love. This is not what I was going to ask about, but I love the fact that you led this off with the importance of CAC. As I, I literally spent all day today talking to my business partner about what's the best way to put that CAC and operate, you know, lowering CAC and keeping operational costs equal while increasing lifetime value is the whole point of marketing. And how do we put that above the fold? The right? Whole, so, right. It's more than marketing. It's like the whole business. Yeah, it's really business. How do you acquire customers, increase their lifetime value? Lifetime value is highly correlated. It should be highly correlated to customer success. Yeah, that's business. Yeah, cool. So I know know I'm on borrowed time, so I don't want to like, I'd love to ask you what the two. Don't worry. All right. Okay. So let me ask you what, uh, what, what this isn't my question, but what do you think of between these two statements, less calls, more clients or less leads, more revenue? What do you think? represents that the best sounds like the same thing less call more clients less leads more less less leads more revenue is literally ripping it off for someone else's website while i was trying to create a variation of less calls more clients um i would think about so um i don't have a ton of context but i'm going to kind of interpret it sounds like you're some tagline or something on your website you're looking for both of those statements i think the thing that you need to look at is anyone could write that yeah. It doesn't differentiate at all what you're doing. I would, especially in businesses like ours, where a lot of people from the outside that aren't listening to the podcast every day or just like view it as a commodity, think that our company versus some of the other ones out there are the same. It's like couldn't be farther from the truth. They're so different. I just, and so, but people don't see that. And so on your website, I think you need to stay focused on differentiating. And then using your content outside of your website to build trust. So you build trust. People come to the website. You're differentiated. P- those two pieces combined, I think, are important. So then, like one of the lenses that I look at, because we refresh our website on like a six month cadence right now. Our messaging is evolving. Something that I actually recommend a lot of companies consider. And one of the lenses I'm looking at is like, could that go on other companies' websites that think that they're like that our customers think are like them? If if so, then let's not use it. So less leads, more revenue, less calls, more clients. I would, I would challenge you to look for other options that focus on the special thing that you do, Pablo, because you think differently. You have an interesting offering. It's for a specific person. I think that challenge you to go a little bit deeper because I think you got more in the tank there. Yeah, that was a, that was just like a hook point and it's a deeper conversation. So I'm not going to waste time, but really good advice. And by the way, um, I told you, Isar, we got to be more unique. Anyways, that's, that's my business partner's name. All right. So question that I have for you is I'm going deep now into customer research, right? And red buyer personas, all in on that. I remember there was a moment when I was early on in uh, cyber stalking you where I was listening to like early podcasts with G and you guys were talking about this like, fact, opinion, feeling kind of matrix for conversations. And I've heard you try to prompt other people on frameworks for these conversations. Are there any other, is there any other frameworks for getting good qualitative feedback from a client when you're in that conversation or ways to get at those conversations that you haven't said in a while that you've learned recently that you'd like to share? From a client or from from a prospect doing doing buyer research, right? From client, from person that didn't buy, from person that you know um, is thinking about it, that type of thing, right? Just just from doing the qualitative research of mm-hmm. my persona. The it's re, it's challenging for me to answer 
this question with like a step one, two, three type of thing. What, what the unlock for me was, and it's super hard to explain, and some people have gotten there and some people haven't, is that you got to cross over the bridge where you separate from the outcome. So I don't, I'm just interested in what people have to say. I don't care whether they're like, I could, can't stand your company. I don't like you. I don't like your product. I love your product. I want to do this, even though you want to do that. The, The key thing is that no matter what data you get, it's the data. And when you can get the mindset and separate from the outcome, you create a high, a much higher level of curiosity where you instead of like when someone's asking something, instead of trying to kind of like defend, which is traps that I've fallen into before when I was younger, earlier in my career, where people would say something instead of trying to dig into why or how and understand how I can use that information to adjust my strategy, I would try and tell them, I would try and defend my point of view, which is not definitely not the point of the research, right? So I feel like, um, and the, the fact opinion feeling one works well, whether it's customer research or across the board in any type of conversation, it's just a way to ease someone into telling you deeper details without going from zero to how does that make you feel type of thing. Um, I know I'm not giving a, a really clear cut answer, but I think that the key is, and I, what most, I've been hovering around what most marketers miss and what uh, in customer research and what most marketers miss is why you don't get why in attribution you don't get why listening to gong calls you don't get why doing all the things that marketers do as proxies and and shortcuts and substitutes for doing real customer research so you don't get the whys and the hows and and certain things that are happening that are the real reason and the real unlock to driving strategy decisions. You just get the what. Um, so I'm not sure if that like fully answers your question, but it's trying, I'm looking at in anything in customer research, in understanding how like a buying process happens, I'm looking for the underlying mechanics, right? If there's a car, I'm looking to understand the engine and the gears and the exhaust pipe and how they all work together. Most people are just looking at what the paint color is. Yeah, that makes sense, man. I didn't know if um, <laughs> it's, it's a tough question to answer, but yeah, I, I I just didn't know if there was another like fact opinion feeling kind of like fr- you know you think in frameworks, right? So I don't know if you've distilled another one. Like I've I've kind of stumbled into this like, what do you care most about? How did you figure out you cared about it? What have you learned since you started caring about it? And where do you think it's headed? Kind of like framework. And I don't know if maybe you've you've stumbled into something like that that you find yourself in a pattern of conversation when you're trying to get at that meat. It's, it's so weird. I'd like that. I don't do customer research the way that you're doing it, the way that you're talking about doing it anymore. And so I think there's, I used to do it the way that you do it where I would sit down with someone and I ask them questions and it's the purpose of us being there is to do customer research. And now I'm just deeply integrated with these events, with social, with talking to a bunch of people that are customers, non-customers, all these things like that, where the research happens all the time. Yeah. That's why you've rescaled through content. It's, it's just, it's at a different level where I don't have to try to ask questions and get data because it's all coming to me all the time, which is why I think that I have a very unique view of the market that a lot of other people don't have. Um, it's just because I 
spend a lot of my day listening to what people write in comments, what questions you ask here, what questions people ask on other shows, what customers are saying and asking, what prospects are saying in sales conversations. It's just like, and that's what I, I'm encouraging people to get to that level, right? It's different for every type of buyer, but like, how do you get the stream of insights where it's all the time that you have customer inputs and things like that, where the date, you don't have to ask questions to get the data. You just have to be around them to sense what's going on. So kind of like a heady, fluffy concept, but it's been really working for me. I totally get that. Now that now that you're at this this scale and you have so many lines in the water that are giving you data at all times, I get very much the sense that you and like Gary V talks about this a lot. You live in your comments and you're reading what people are saying and you're in the communities and you're interacting. Outside of like gut feel, have have you found a way to get beyond just your intuition, understanding what's important? Like, have you figured out how to maybe take that a step? And I'm, you know, I think the easy thing is like, how are you keeping track of the data? But like, I'm, I'm asking more yeah. along the lines of like, is your thought, can you train somebody else to think like this or find somebody else with this core skill set or anything like that? I didn't have the skill set forever, so I know it can be trained. I, I, somebody starts, this guy, Andy Midwin started teaching me this in 2013. And I've just continued, and then in a lot of the people that I worked for, like as part of our K- KPIs as marketers that we had to go out and visit customers. We had to spend time with the sales team. We had to do things that a lot of marketers never do. And as you start to see the ridiculous benefits of doing that early on in your career, it was crazy. And then I, and then I left those companies. I looked out in the world and I was totally fat. You have no idea in 2019 when I started to do this on my own, I was totally fascinated that there are marketers that never talk to customers. And it's not like there are a couple, it's most of them. And when I say customers, it's not just people that pay you money, it's the market. And I was just like blown away. It's like the begin step one of marketing is to understand the market. <laughs> so the, what was the original question? Um, how do you get the oh, input that you're getting from all the comments? Yeah, is there yeah. anybody else that's illuminating kind of like that apart from your gut feeling of what's happening inside of your comments or some, yeah. some other process? There's, it's uh, collecting all the data and the signals and then making, it's not like people call it gut, but it's, it's data. The data is just getting processed in my brain from qualitative, right? Yeah. Um, and so it's not really intuition. It's informed by a lot of data. It's just data that's different than what people put in spreadsheets and in dashboards and things like that. And my feeling is the data that I get is way cleaner and way more effective and way faster and way better that drives faster, better decisions. And so, and I think that as people move through this process that are listening to this podcast and start to do these things for themselves, they'll see the same things. Like I'm helping people do self-reported attribution because it's the like, it's the smallest step to doing qualitative customer research that anyone can do by changing one field in their form to just get the spark of like, wow, when we actually talk to customers and we actually listen to them, how much better data we get, how much better decisions we make, how much more sense it makes that, oh, our customers are actually doing these things. It makes perfect sense. That's what we thought. That's what they tell us. That's what we're hearing in sales calls, all that stuff, even though software is saying this thing. So I think that people need to adjust how they think about data and making decisions because I just feel like this is a, it's more effective. 
Makes sense, man. I'll, I'll leave you alone, dude. Go on to the next one. No, you, dude, you, you, don't leave, you don't have to leave me alone. It's a pleasure having you. Thank you. Right, right on, man. Appreciate it. Thanks, Pablo. All right. Um, we're going to get close to 930 here, people. We're going to have another record-setting episode. Holy cow. I know. I'm bringing in closer number two, David. Nelson is on the bench tonight. <laughs> <laughs> And in, in honor of Nelson, I'm wearing a special hat for it. Uh. <laughs> All right. So, um, I, I, so many things I want to kind of dig into. Happy to. All right. On the open-ended question for attribution, you know, that's how people used to do it before there was attribution software. Uh, I'm aware. <laughs> you used to ask the question all the time. And then Google Analytics came along. And we thought that would be easier because coding the data was a pain in the butt and people didn't want to do that. Yep. But the people who did it were like, okay, maybe this is better because, of course, you know, electronic seems better than manual. Yep. And we're seeing the outcome of that now. So I'm all aboard with doing the open-ended field. All right. So just want to mention that. Love it. Um, on your interpreting the data, you're seeing patterns as you look at the data because you spend the time looking at it. If you don't have time to look at it, you can't see the patterns. And so you want somebody else to synthesize it for you. And that's why you use attribution technology because you don't see the patterns yourself because you're not close enough to the data. So just to kind of help answer Pablo's question a little bit, because you're looking at your comments all the time, because you're interacting with people all the time, you're noticing repetition. It, it, would, it would happen to any of us if we did the same thing. So, all right, just those two comments I thought were helpful, perhaps. Those I have two really valid and smart comments. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> two <laughs> thoughts. I, I wanted to ask a question about red flags in job hunting, and I wanted to well, kind of offer an, a thought or two on, on a hero. Um, on red flags in job hunting. So it's that time of year. We're looking at our current jobs. We're seeing people quit. There's the great resignation going on. We've been listening to Chris for the last X number of months. And we're thinking, this place I'm working at right now isn't cutting it. I should start looking at something else. I've heard my mates, and they've been getting some awesome pay rises, and that's damn cool, and I want some of that for me too. Great. So here comes the question. What are some red flags that prospective job hunters should be looking out for as they take a look at new places to go work so that they don't jump out of the frying pan of where they are today into something more miserable, perhaps, because they're doing it long distance now as opposed to part of the team that they used to be part of and they've got some kind of history and, and um, mm -hmm. momentum and understanding of context. But now they're doing it. Right? What are some of the red flags that you would suggest to a, to a demand gen market, let's focus it on this, yeah. right? So that they say, so that you say, you can dodge this bad case because they're exhibiting X or Y or Z. And it's never definitive, of course, but just some thoughts. What would you suggest? Yeah. Before we get into this, I've seen that story before a lot of times where there's somebody that the grass is always green on their side, right? It's 50%, 75% pay increase to go and move this place then you get there culture sucks job stressful was the pay increase really worth it probably not 
So I just, uh, I, I think there are a lot of people right now and the market is very hot and people are prioritizing comp over everything. And I think you got to look at the whole package. You got to look at long time learning. You got to look at culture. You have to look at happiness. You have to look at comp. You have to look at benefits. I think the, the market in general and what I'm seeing is, and I've done this before too, right? So especially earlier in my career where you optimize, you try to optimize for comp annual compensation when the real value of your career long-term and where you make the real money is on building actual skills, on driving actual results and building real relationships with smart, talented people that you capitalize on in five years when that person doesn't need a demand gen manager, they need a CMO. And because they worked with you before that and you built that and paved the way and blah, 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 you go and get the big job. So some people take a optimize for comp early and miss all of those really great things. When we think about red flags, maybe Megan can maybe Megan will jump into this one too because I think it'd be interesting. Some of the things that I look at as a to, as a marketer is what does the company do for marketing right now? I'm blown away by how many companies take marketing strategy advice from companies that have ebooks gated with like 18 form fields. <laughs> how, are you, how are you going to get your strategy advice on how to do demand, on how to build content, on how to drive revenue from companies that operate their own marketing like it's 2011? It just blows me away. So if, you, if you're a marketer and you're looking at a company, analyze how they do marketing right now. What's their website look like? Who's on, I'll just look at how they do marketing and I'll get into a little bit more detail. How they do marketing, what does the website look like? Do they run ads on channels? You can look at LinkedIn and Facebook and Instagram, it's all public data. Um, do they produce content? If so, in what formats? Are they still busy with their blog strategy or are they evolved and moved into like dark social and places like that? So like how they do marketing is a serious indicator of the quality of the, of the people that work there, of the investment and thoughts in marketing, of the ideas and capability of the marketing leader. So I think that one is really interesting. I, the next thing that I would start to look at is how big is the, how big is the marketing team relative to the company and is that team growing? So looking at if I join this team that's six people, is there going to be an opportunity in the future to grow? Because the number one way to grow in your career is to join a company that's growing super fast where there's opportunities all over the place in your function and things like that. I've been in places when I've been performing really well as a marketer, but the marketing team was the same size for two years. No opportunities, no promotions, not growing. Company doubled the size of the sales team, but marketing stayed the same size. You're not, you're going to get a, potentially some learnings there, but you're not going to be able to get the acceleration in your career that a lot of people are looking for. I'm not really, I'm covering more like detailed stuff. Megan, what do you got for red flags? So I'll kind of take it from a little bit of a different angle, especially if you're a candidate that's maybe evaluating companies and then engaging in an interview process and things that you can start to spot early on. And so I think one for me is, um, especially today, it should be pretty easy to find information on your own about what it's like to work somewhere. Just like if you're a buyer and you wanted to buy a product, you could do research on the offering and pricing and reviews. 
the same thing applies as a candidate, right? Like, what are the Glassdoor reviews saying? Like, what do I see on LinkedIn? Um, there's all of these different uh, channels. Oh, I know someone that works there. Let me talk to them about their experience. And so if uh, if you're not investing in getting content out about what it's like to work there, then you're missing the mark. And I think the best companies do that really well. So that can be a red flag or a green flag to take a look out. I think transparency in the interview process, if people are cagey and hiding things like salary or not being transparent about the role or what success criteria looks like. Um, that's a red flag to me. Like they're hiding something if they're not being super open with that. Um, also like what is the interview process like? If you're not enjoying the interview process, you probably will not enjoy working there. Um, because if they're dropping the ball in, in the interview process, then onboarding is probably not going to be good. And there's probably other dysfunction that exists in the company that you're going to start to feel and notice. Um, the other piece of it is, um, like I, when I, when we interview people at Refine Labs, I always ask questions about the person. What do you want in your career? What do you care about? How are you evaluating us? Because I actually care about what a potential person joining our team wants for their future, what they perceive as the most important parts in choosing a workplace or an opportunity. Um, if People in the interview process are not asking questions to learn about you and are staying very one-sided. That's another red flag to me that they're they're not looking at you as a whole person. Um, and likely some of the things that you're going to care about are maybe not going to actually come to fruition, you know, if you start working there and getting an offer. So a um, little bit of a different take, but those are some like easy things that like if you just pay attention, you can find out early and just like opt out and not waste your time uh, going too far deep into an interview process. The the interview process one, Megan, is so good. Like if the <laughs> if your interview process sucks or if it has too many steps or it's not fun, like that's a big red flag. Um I'm with you. That was thank you for closing that out. That was an awesome answer. That's very helpful because for a lot of folks who are in demand gen roles, they're not the senior most roles in marketing, right? Generally speaking. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people who have that kind of role often don't have a lot of years of experience working in companies. It might be their second job in all, right? And so it's it can be difficult to go shopping for something you've done very, very rarely. So I think Chris, you've you know, kind of outlined a couple of systematic things to be looking for. I think one definitely I would call out on is is the number of people in that department and how much is it growing. If you've got less than 4%, it's going to be perhaps difficult, especially if you find that they've got something like 30 to 40% of people in sales. That might give you an idea of something. So, mm -hmm. all right, not to kind of harp on that. So it's already late. I, my comment on Hero. Yeah, okay. well, looking forward to this. Okay. We're well, gonna break. I'm, I, I'm tired. Two or three I don't have minutes, we're going to break a record, so I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> So the waterfall, who, who here has ever been a customer of Serious Decisions? Let's, hands up. I don't see any hands. No one's been a customer of Serious Decisions. I've been a customer of Serious Decisions. Oh, there goes a hand. So the, 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 the MQL waterfall matrix, they abandoned that. I'm looking at a chart here in 2012. I know, I, I know, the, I know the new one, 20, 20, 2018, 2019, 2020, revenue waterfall. I'm familiar with it. Yeah. They've got this opportunity stage process now. And, and 
I'm not here to say that I understand it or think it's great or wonderful or better. I'm not here to say that. And I'm not here to criticize serious decisions for the good stuff that they brought either. Mm -hmm. right? um, what I love about what you're trying to do with Hero is offer standardized language that we can all share and use and understand what it means across different companies and departments. And that indeed is the power of the MQL framework, right? Um, of course, the first step in that framework is called an inquiry, and everyone's forgotten that, but that's another story, perhaps for another day. But the power of that ill-fated framework that has been abandoned since at least 2012 by serious decisions themselves, so consider that as we're all complaining about a process that the originators no longer advocate, right? is that it did offer some kind of common framework of language that for at least a while, people kind of commonly understood what it means. And mm -hmm. now people don't at all today understand what it, even an MQL is, right? An MQL is understood today by five different people. Varying definitions, totally. That's absolutely, right? Okay, great. So, and they put that together based on speaking to lots of types of players of a particular mold admittedly um, enterprise accounts, uh, you know, the big, the IBMs, the Oracles, the CAs and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So as you put together the hero framework, which I've been asking you, I don't know if you'll remember this, but I've been asking you over about a year now for an alternative measure set because it's I've coming, said- David, you've been asking, but it's, it might be here for you before Christmas. It's coming. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the things I get for Christmas. Thank you so much, Chris. That's so very wonderful. Right, I hope it comes in with a, a, a good- uh, um, <laughs> All right. Um, MQLs are a habit now, and they're triggered because it's a response to a requirement, like most habits, right? They're responses, like addictions. MQLs are addictions. People are addicted to them. So to get them off of that addiction, you have to replace the habit. That's how it works with heroin. That's how it works with drugs. That's how it works with vanity, okay? You have to get okay. them off the habit. You need to replace the habit with something. And this is what I've been kind of querying about. What could be a good replacement that we could use that could be meaningful, that, that is measurable? Because we have to have points along the way on our journey. Otherwise, the journey from A to B, you don't have any calibration points along the way. You just know closed opportunity, opened opportunity, but you can't tell anything, anything along that journey, which is what the MQL language is supposed to do and kind of emphasize quality. So, gosh. What's my point? My point is, I guess, I'd love to collaborate with you or, or, or talk with you about the hero framework because I would hate for you to try to do the good thing and the right thing for us all, which we're all looking for and hope for, but somehow it not have wide enough sensibility to how it can get, get pushed back on. Um, I, for example, could very, I don't think I could look at any of the VPs of sales that I've worked for and call a demo request high intent. I could call it higher likelihood, but for them, intent is something that only can be determined through a conversation. And probably I don't trust you marketing people as to what your conversations sound like. It's got to be one of my guys. Assuming you have a sales force, right? Not all products have sales teams. So I define, just I'm going to jump in, please. I want you to continue, but I define intent based on win rates. Not qualitative customer conversations, not like not whether the sales rep thinks it's qualified or not. I determine intent based on the win rates of the leads. And I'm not here to argue with that. It's just yeah, yeah, making sure that everyone understands what you mean 
because we talk mm-hmm. about high intent inquiries and, and the word intent gets used all over the place now. It mm-hmm. had to become, to me, intent is the new MQL mm-hmm. or, or the MQL yet to be. I, I, I once called MQLs the faded rock star of, of um, you know, enterprise marketing. Um, nobody remembers their time when they were great, but we all remember an old song that we remember that we thought was good. So I think intent is becoming one of those abused words too. Um, Indeed, anyway. for sure. Uh, yeah, I don't know what it means anymore. I thought I did. I didn't, obviously. Anyway, this has been fun. Um, I really, I am a big fan of yours. I hope you realize that. I of don't course. need to be trying to make life more complicated by asking un- unanswerable questions. I, I do want a, re- a replacement framework that I think could be pragmatic and meaningful. I don't know what that language is. I'm very curious to see what you develop and share with us. Um, but love to have a look on the yeah, we'll, before it gets published. We'll get you in there to take, give a look and give some feedback before it gets published. What we're centering on at that exact stage, just so you know, is what the MQL doesn't exist anymore and what it gets replaced by is a high intent conversion, which is essentially just a way better definition of an MQL. There's not, not much that more to it. High intent, high intent conversion comes through specific places meet specific win rate criteria that's that's standardized from lead to win and that's all there is to it so it's basically just putting a quality control metric so that an mql means something to a sales outcome which right now it doesn't and so that's some of the things and then we're changing how what our things are getting measured before that because companies measure i think all the wrong things website traffic and then try and convert gross website traffic into some type of conversion Oh, so if we just increase website traffic from 100,000 to 200,000, we'll get twice as many conversions. It's like, no, that's not how it works. So giving better definitions at the at the top, quote unquote, or the higher level, and then working through a specific funnel that has super high conversion rates and focuses your marketing on things that are the most effective is where we're at. But I will 100% uh, send you a first draft when it's ready and would welcome your feedback. Happy to provide it. I, you know, we need something, right? Um, I can sense it. I, I just, I can, I can tell that the market needs this, which is why I'm really interested in building it and trying to push myself. It's a really hard challenge to solve, trying to create space and push myself to solve it because people need an alternative right now. They, they run marketing models that are built by technology vendors and pushed by analyst firms. Yes. And they're leveraging hand-me-down knowledge. It's funny where this industry is old enough that we're working with hand-me-down knowledge. How do we? How did that happen? I, mean, look at, I look at the yeah, folks. Talk in the me room. through what hand-me-down knowledge is real quick, and then we got to get people to bed. But what is hand-me-down knowledge? No one's actually been a serious decisions customer. You never learned what an MQL is from them. You learned it from your boss or your boss's boss who once maybe was, or they read it somewhere. And the way you were using an MQL in that in your sentence just now was not how I would ever use an MQL. An MQL, you, you use it like an inquiry. And you're going like, well, David, what's an inquiry? And I said, well, that's a stage before an MQL. And only three to 5% of your inquiries turn into MQLs. Ooh, I hope not. And well, depends on how you, you want to measure things and what your business is. Yeah. But, the point, but the point being, coming up with a framework is one thing, sharing it enough widely so that it becomes commonplace and a replacement for something else, you're, you're into a model replacement, right? 
And that's very hard. After all, Serious Decisions wasn't successful doing it. Their 2006 model is what everyone still remembers. Nobody remembers. I'm looking mm -hmm. at the charts here, right? The 2012, the 2017, or, or the 2019 versions, because that got too complicated. Anyway. Um, anyway. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Really, yeah. <laughs> really, appreciate, really appreciate you and Megan and this whole, this whole community that you've built here. It's a tremendous place to learn. I've turned on so many people to your business. I don't know how many of them are actually able to become customers, but I, I do send a lot of folks your way. Dark funnel, you know. Appreciate it. That I am. Um, appreciate it. You've been here since episode one, David, so thank you. You were literally the OG. <laughs> um, it's been a great ride. Cool, yeah, and a long ride to go, I hope. All right, everyone. Wow. First time back after a Thanksgiving holiday, and we came back with fire. It's now 9.40 p.m. Eastern. We've been going for more than two hours, which is wild. Um, who thought that you could talk about demand gen and marketing and business for this long? Wow. And who I can't I don't have my laptop in front of me, so I can't see how many people are still here. But it looks like there's quite a few people that are still here live, which is cool. 32. <laughs> yeah, 32 people holding strong. It's awesome. So we uh, I don't want to make any promises, but our old friend Gatano and things like that have been talking about maybe bringing him back for an episode sometime soon to talk through 2022 demand gen predictions. It's been something that him and I have done for this will be the third year in a row if we're able to do it and pull it off. Um, and so uh, if people are looking. Give me a thumbs up if people want to have that happen. We'll make it happen. Cool. All right. Good. I can see some good. So we'll. I'll, I'll talk to G offline. We'll see if we can make it happen for one of the next upcoming demand gen lives, which will be cool. Again, just to reiterate, appreciate all of you. Grateful for this community and everything that's happened through it. So, yeah, with that said, let's, uh, let's all get to bed and we'll see you next Tuesday. Thank you, everyone. Hey, everyone. Thanks for checking out this episode of the State of Demand Gen podcast. You know, it's crazy to think that now more than 15,000 demand marketers, sales reps, product marketers, field marketers, CMOs, and everything in between are listening to this podcast and getting a ton of value out of it. And so if you've been listening to the podcast and you've been getting value out of it, I would really, really, really appreciate if you could leave a rating in the podcast section. It would mean a lot to me. Thank you and see you for the next episode.